0: It's my pleasure to introduce to you our speaker for lunch today, uh, Lawrence Iannacone. And uh, the vital statistics on Larry are interesting enough. Uh, he is, for at least a little while longer, the Koch Professor of Economics at George Mason University. He's been there since 2002. Prior to that, he taught for many years at Santa Clara University, had two years affiliated with the Hoover Institution at Stanford. Um, he has a master's degree in math, PhD in economics from the University of Chicago. His dissertation committee included Gary Becker, George Stigler. Okay, he's got an impressive background. Uh, he, was, he is a pioneer in using economic theory and methodology to study questions related to the practice of religion. And so I hope you will join me in welcoming Larry Iannacone.
1: Thank you, Chuck. That was uh, altogether too kind. Um, and thank you all of you for uh, being here today and uh, um it's a it's a great pleasure to be here back at Baylor, and a great honor to be speaking to you tonight today this uh, this afternoon. The plan of this talk is to briefly describe what the economics of religion is and is not. To say a little bit about its value for Christians, Christian economists, and economists in general. To reflect briefly on the field's past and possible future. To suggest what it means what this field might mean for Christian schools and scholars, and finally just say a little bit about what I think it means or should mean for you. You'll notice that I'm not using PowerPoint. I was asked at one point whether I wanted to. Uh, The topic, after all, is religion, and you're Christian scholars, so you might want to think of this more as a sermon than a lecture. And by the way, uh, if you find yourself in a church where the pastor routinely preaches with PowerPoint, you might want to find yourself another church. That's just my personal bias, and uh, I appreciate worshiping without hymnals as much as anybody, I guess. But uh, um, speaking of sermons, uh, <laughs> uh, I'll save that part for, for another conversation about religious capital uh, and um, the benefits and costs of technological innovation, um, which does in fact fall within the domain of, of my research. I'm beginning to give you a feel uh, for just how strange my research is. Uh, it, it's, it's widely acknowledged that a good sermon has just one main point. At last count, uh, mine has 15. So there's so a line for refunds uh, uh, forms in the rear. Let's try to avoid some misconceptions right at the outset. Let me say a little about what the economics of religion is not. It's not merely studying the monetary or business side of religion, the financing of religion, contributions, clerical pay, taxation, the economic power of churches. All of that is interesting and important. But it is, at best, a very, very small part of what I call the economics of religion and what, in general, people are calling the economics of religion. Nor, and this deserves even more emphasis, nor is it what I would call religious economics, be it Islamic economics or Christian economics or papal statements on economic policy or Jewish biblical rules about economic activity. To appreciate the distinction between religious economics on the one hand uh, and the economics of religion on the other, Consider the the dual way in which people use the word economics. On the one hand, there is the domain of economics, the institutions, the activities, the information that make up our economy. So we talk about firms and, and, and industries buying and selling, producing, consuming, prices and profits. Activities, institutions, information. On the other hand, and, and that, frankly, is what people, most people, especially most non-academic, econ- uh, you know, people think economics is all about. Oh, you're an economist. What should I, you know, what do you think is happening to interest rates tomorrow? Uh, the correct answer, by the way, if any of you out there as economists haven't already worked this out, is <clears throat> I don't know. And if I did, I wouldn't tell you, uh, because after all, you want to use the information yourself. Uh, All right. It's not about that, primarily. Uh, Economics is, uh, as as academic economists appreciate, also an approach, a perspective, a collection of methods, techniques, ideas. Gary Becker, uh, the Nobel laureate, once described the heart of the economic approach as three assumptions, that of maximizing behavior, stable preferences, and market equilibrium, used, as he said, relentlessly and unflinchingly. Standard economics is all about applying these methods that we think of as economic methods or perspective to the domain that most people think of as economic. And in a similar manner, you can think about religion and religious studies as both domain and approach. There is, after all, the collection of activities like prayer and worship, institutions like churches and denominations, information embedded in scripture and revelation. We can also that, that make up you know the domain, but we can talk about perspectives, theological, spiritual, acting and emphasizing moral uh, uh, issues, determining God's will, following the lead of Scripture, and Holy Spirit. That approach is what characterizes the heart of religion and spirituality for people who really you know live the, the religious life. Religious economics. So if you so if you think about this, you know domain up here, economic you know firms. Um, Approach or perspective over here. Same kind of thing in religion. Religious economics is about, as I see it, taking the theological, spiritual, religious perspective and approach and applying it to questions about the economy. You know? So what does God have to say about progressive taxation? Uh, or if you think that sounds a little flip, you know, what, what should we as Christians do or say in our society about income inequality? What should we be doing about issues of economic development? Uh, is there a biblical or a moral perspective on banking or you know, any, any number of things. Uh, the economics of religion is in some sense almost the opposite. Instead of going from religious and spiritual perspectives over to the economy, it's about taking these economic perspectives and ways of thinking, which frankly don't have a lot of religious or spiritual content to them, and applying them to understanding better religious behavior, religious institutions, relig- and outcomes. And also better understanding the connections between the domain of religion and the domain of, of the economy. So economists of religion, what do they do? Well, uh, you know, in brief, they, they use the tools of economics to understand issues like church growth, why some religions seem to flourish and others decline, why Baptists, for example, are doing so well, uh, and uh, for that matter Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, even better in the, in the growth game when uh, – so-called mainline uh, we should probably be now calling them old line or perhaps even sideline denominations uh, have been doing so badly now I realize market share isn't everything but it, you know, economics is well suited for looking at market share and, and saying things about it economics is well suited for trying to understand different what we call religious markets you can think about America as fundamentally the world's first laissez-faire religious market where from the get-go thanks to the first amendment and and, uh, the thanks, you know, right from the get-go we had kind of religious freedom and the freedom to innovate and be entrepreneurial about religion that the old West that Europe had never seen. In Europe you had what an economist would call established you had what what they called established churches and what an economist would call a state-regulated, state-run monopoly. And Rodney Stark last night referred to lazy monopolies Adam Smith, no less, no less Adam, an economist than Adam Smith in 1776, lays the groundwork for the economics of religion by discussing at length, in the fifth book of The Wealth of Nations, discussing at length... The nature and problems of the religious institutions, the established churches of Europe, and how they have suffered from being so thoroughly entangled with government, and in particular, he analyzes it as a problem of what you might call lazy monopoly uh, state subsidized and all of the, the the problems that arise elsewhere with those kind of monopolies arise with with European religion and, and to some extent do right down to the present the u s was a very different place from the start; people thought it was going to be the opposite of God's country. They thought it was going to be, you know, a place since there was no rules or, or laws making you be religious, let alone defining what that religion would be, let alone causing you, forcing you to subsidize the religion via your taxes. This would be a land of, uh, you know, of non-believers. Well, it was a land of heresies for sure. There are more religions cropping up in the U.S. than anywhere else, but it was a land and it remains a land of religious vigor and a land of religious innovation and a tremendous exporter, actually, of religious ideas uh, to the whole world. And economists can help You know, us understand this, and in fact, the economic perspective is in some sense antithetical to the traditional social scientific perspective. The traditional perspective was all about secularization, the world's, you know, going to hell in a handbasket. Well, maybe that's a good thing, because most of the secularization theorists were themselves uh, quite atheistic. Uh, So the the world is going to hell, but that's a really cool thing. But uh, the world is going to hell for sure, because, you know, well, that's just the nature of human progress. Economists came along and said, no, what you're looking at, in Europe in particular, is the result, the stultifying. Result of a uh, religious economy run kind of like the post office and uh, American public schools put together. Get the best of both worlds. Uh, now, I'm being glib about this because it's after, you know, lunch, and you're not supposed to be too serious after lunch. You'll all go away with indigestion. But I tr- what I'm trying to convey is that there's a whole body of research that's grown up, and, and Chuck is, is one of many people who've contributed this, to this, taking economic notions, very solid, respectable economic notions, using very solid, respectable traditional economic techniques to try to understand better the world of religion. Now, I'm not talking about doing regressions on the existence of God and deciding whether or not God is statistically. Significant, even after correcting for possible endogeneity, bias, autocorrelation, you know, and spurious uh, uh, relationships. Uh, I'm talking, you know. Uh, quite seriously about the social side of religion, the human side of of religion. And Christians in particular, the whole Judeo-Christian tradition, understands that our, our sacred text is written by humans. We believe inspired by God, but it's a very human act. And so also the Bible and Christian history is full of both the strengths and weaknesses that arise when humans, motivated by the spirit or whatever else, sometimes some uh, very low motivations, try to act in in churches and denominations. And the social sciences in general, economics in particular, has a lot to say about these things. Some of the things I've already alluded to, let me just mention a few more. and as i and i you know i'm doing this in a rather haphazard way if, if if i were lecturing in a classroom it would you know there'd be much more system and rigor to it but but let me just sort of not, you know go through the list very briefly at the micro level the level of households and individuals economic and sociological approaches have helped us learn a lot about the nature of religious commitment how it's developed and transmitted across gener- across generations and and the single most important result is that religiosity you know faith and 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 commitment grows out of religious capital and yes i know you know are the occasion, uh, you know are are the occasional rare uh, knock you off your horse sort of um, conversion experiences though even those and and i count myself as, as somebody who's had that kind of experience i think even those for the most part are grounded in a whole range of experiences before that but for most people Religious commitment is very much a process of learning by doing of accumulating experience and and uh, you know uh, it, it isn't a matter of just not, non-religious people have this notion that religion ought to, uh, and, and religious commitment ought to be a kind of narrow psychological process. I sit back. I reflect. I look like the, you know, Rodin's the thinker. I read the works of Buddha you know, and Jesus, and, you know, and then I ruminate and I talk, and then I come to a commitment. It just ain't like that, folks. You get raised in a religion, and for the most part, you stay in a religion. What religious decisions you make, you tend to make relatively early in life, and economic perspective, a human capital perspective, makes perfect sense of this. You're accumulating skills. They're relevant for a certain context. Only rarely do you choose a different context. When you do, you do it relatively early in life. The most frequent you know, major conversions hap- happen in the context of marriage. You can think of it as now a joint production process. You've got one set of capital; she's got another set of capital. You've got to decide. Usually, you don't meet in the middle. The, the worst thing, you know, is for a Jew and a uh, you know uh, for an Orthodox Jew and a conservative Protestant to decide to become High Church Catholics. You know, uh, one or the other. Uh, My problem, you know, and and really I can speak about this, uh, you know, jokingly, but it's a a problem of of what you would call religious and spiritual capital. Uh, My capital was was acquired in a uh, low church Protestant uh, evangelical sort of tradition. When I'm among Catholics, some of my best friends are Catholics. Uh, uh, I, I, was at, I was taught at Santa Clara University, which is a Jesuit school for, for many long years. Uh, but when I'm among Catholics and at Catholic services, I never know when to sit and when to stand and when I should be you know, mumbling the words in something approximating Latin. Uh, and well, for that matter, since Vatican II, neither do most Catholics. Um, that's a problem uh, that, that is... Okay, look, there are all these kinds of issues that arise... Uh, at the level of households and individuals, and they can be thought of as as uh, rational responses to your environment, to your upbringing, to the stock of skills and sensitivities that, that you have acquired, call it, you know, capital formation. Churches understand this. Why do they devote so much time and energy to teaching their children? Why do they get so concerned when government encroaches on the ways in which they want to teach their children? There's nothing that, you know, gets a seriously religious person, whether evangelical or, or, or you know, or orthodox, uh, uh Uh, upset more than a government action that, in effect, restricts what they can do with their children, because they understand the appreciation of building that capital. Christians also should, uh, although they don't want to always admit it, appreciate the extent to which their religious decisions are governed at the margin, let me say, at the margin, by simple costs and benefits. Now, I'm not saying that I go to church because I did the calculation and I decided it came out ahead, but on any given day, my likelihood of going to church is very much affected by costs and benefits. I'm not proud of this. It's just a fact, okay? So if I've been up really late the previous night, I'm more likely to go to the late service or Really late service next week. Uh, If I've, uh, you know, if uh, it's certain times of the year, There are more competing activities. I've done a study of church attendance rates over the years and uh, over the the uh, the yearly cycle, and it's just you know really disturbing to see what happens when the kids get out of school. You know, you have more free time, and apparently none of it for God. Uh, So churches uh, church attendance patterns follow you know a very regular cycle, and the only reasonable way to explain it is is basically in terms of people, you know, shifting at the margin the time they devote to religious and secular, and especially recreational Activities. There's a lot of things that economics and, and the social scientific uh, you know, reasoning has to say about religion at the level of congregations and denominations. There's an I.O. Of, of religion, and not a terribly well-developed one, but in particular, we have a lot of insights about why weird religions do well. And frankly, uh, if you're in this room, uh, there's a good no, you, there's a good chance that you belong to a, a weird religion. You may not think of it that way, but religions, most of them, restrict your choices. And and from an economic standpoint, this is a puzzle. You know, restricting your opportunity set should make you less well off. So why is it that you know most uh, religions have all kinds of restrictions on sexual conduct? Some have restrictions. Mormons on, on you know on what you drink and you know, what what smoke and well Baptists and. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, even more so, Orthodox Jews. From the outside, this looks like the essence of irrationality, or at least non-rationality. Okay? And on the inside, people tend to think of it as something other than rational choice. You know, it's just a divine mandate. One of the great insights of the economic approach is that religions function like what we call economic clubs. They are institutions for collective action nothing wrong with that. That's a perfectly reasonable way to think about religion. Religion, you know, and it's a Christian way, the church isn't just individuals, it's a collectivity. And that collectivity is mutually reinforcing. You want to be in a church where other people come regularly, contribute regularly, know the words to the songs, you know, don't, uh, and don't just hum while the uh, worship team is up there, you know, uh, laying it on. Uh, and, I, and I like, you know, I like Christian versions of the Beatles as much as anybody else, but, I, I, you know, uh, you want to be in a church where, even if by you know by some act of, of uh, divine or rather diabolical you know conspiracy, the power went off, there would actually be sound in the auditorium still. You know, instead of just mm, mm, Jesus, Jesus. Mm. Uh, by the way, I, I'm really this is very unfair because I, I'm picking on my, but it's it's my own religious tradition, so I get to pick on it. I, I like to say that the modern uh, worship. Uh, uh, modern evangelical worship tends to fall into the category of uh, "Oui, Jesus, I love you," Repeat it over and over and again. Uh, Jesus, 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 and Ui, Ui, Uh and and you and you take any one phrase, you know, I just kind of repeat it. Uh, and and uh, I, what bothers me about it is is that. what I get. That's what I get. Oh, there we go. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. Look, I'm getting a little too, yeah, the Lord, I, I had once in the, in the middle of my thesis defense, I made some remark uh, about, let's not get too glib here and a lightning bolt at the University of Chicago sort of, it almost came through the, the window. And, uh, I realized then that I had made a serious mistake in choosing my thesis topic. Uh, but I was, I was stuck. Uh, okay. Look, um, one of the major insights of uh, the economics and, and in some broader sense sociology of religion is that costly religion pays for itself in increased commitment. That a religion that asks nothing of you gets nothing from you and collectively has nothing to offer. And that a lot of the apparent weirdness of, of religions but from the outside can be understood, and I, I'm saying this in purely One 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 one. That uh, on? What's that on? Uh, okay. Well, we may have, whatever. You always carry extra batteries in this business. Hello. Uh, from a strictly human sense, these high costs function to screen out free riders. When your religion says that you can't smoke and you can't drink and sex is only for, you know, faithful marital relationships and gambling is out and there's a, long, and, you know, and there's a whole long list, people who are kind of, they're not gonna join that religion, you know? Uh, they'll become Unitarians or something. And the net effect is the people who do join tend to be quite committed. And by the way, as, as my friend Rod would point out, when you are a part of that religion, And when the only thing you're allowed to do, you know, I mean, when you're not allowed to smoke and drink and dance uh, and, you know, and fraternize with secular people and worldly folks, man, you really look forward to that Wednesday night, uh, you know, church gathering. It's the highlight of your week. Uh, Well, there are ways quite, quite formal and and serious in which economics helps us understand the nature of religious commitment. Uh, Let me move on. and and understand some of the apparently odd institutional features of commitment. As I've already alluded to, it it, it helps us understand the nature of whole religious markets and the power of religious liberty and pluralism. Of course, in a pluralistic setting, you're going to find that you disagree with almost everybody else. But in a pluralistic setting, innovations and the Word of God and your truth at least have a place. In a non-pluralistic setting, uh, you get to be either the oppressor or the oppressed, basically. That's, that's your choice. And neither one of them, I would argue, is good for Christians or good for Christianity, and neither one of them is good for market outcomes. And I mean this in the sense of the, the religious marketplace. It's not good also. Uh, the surest way to create intolerance and violence, religious militancy, is to try to clamp down and control religion. Uh, Adam Smith and, and David Hume had a fascinating debate about this, and Smith was, was proved right uh, many times over. Um, let me shift uh, focus slightly and, and, and reflect on some other aspects of, of this, this approach uh, rather than just sort of the particular research outcomes let me say, as I've already kind of indicated by my allusions to sociology of religion and to some individual sociologists, I, can't, I don't believe that economists can travel this path alone. I think that fruitful models, spring fruitful, fruitful theory and insights, including those that I've just named, even, even jokingly, uh, spring from a marriage of abstract theory and empirical insight. Economists can often supply the theory, but the results tend to be interesting, if not downright absurd, if they ignore the work of non-economists, and I include, of course, that of people who actually, you know, religious institutions, but especially also academic uh, social scientists who study religion, sociologists of religion. Uh, they've spent decades amassing data from surveys and interviews and textual sources and direct participation in religious groups. And I'm delighted that at this conference we had Rodney Stark speaking first and that Baylor's uh, Institute for Studies in Religion is is involved because I think it's no no fluke that the sociologists of religion and the economists of religion have been meeting closely together for many years. It's no fluke that uh, just as... Chuck talks about my reaching out, uh, at least to some extent, to to him, Rod, uh, and some others, but Rodney Stark in particular reached out to me decades ago and and when no economist showed any interest in in the kind of work I was doing and said, hey, this is interesting stuff, and it dovetails nicely with what we're seeing and facts that we know. Um, I believe that marriage is, is essential. I also believe that people of faith are for the most part better equipped to do good research on religion than their non-believing counterparts. You can't just assemble models of religion, even the economics of religion, uh, even something as apparently straightforward as understanding the impact of religious commitment on income, education, wages, you know, economic development. You can't just assemble these pieces out of some standard economic model that you just sort of throw. Let's see, from your perspective, standard. Okay, right-hand side, my left. You throw, you know, there's a regression. You're looking at economic development, wages, something that you're interested in. And we just throw some measure of religiosity or religion over here. And there's a tremendous amount of empirical work that's being done by economists uh, these days, along these lines. Now, in some sense, I'm delighted that it's going on, because in the past, the attitude was, why bother studying religion? It's stupid, it's going away, and it's a good thing that it's going away. Uh, but a lot of what's being done now is kind of stupid, too. Uh, it's that you need to think more, that, you know, it, religion isn't just something arr, that you have more or less of, like, a stick of butter, you know? And, and you know, Baptists know that they're not Unitarians, and so do Unitarians. Uh, uh, Unitarians don't know what they are. The, the, the joke is you know, that a Unitarian is somebody who believes in one God, more or less. Uh but in any but but uh, I mean the the strength of religion and its impact its capacity to actually shape people's lives and shape communities comes from things that are very that are quite hard to measure and it's certainly easily lost in a standard survey where you just jump you know throw some measure of, of religiosity into uh, regressions and so I'm frankly quite fearful of standard economists taking their standard models and trying to just augment them in some simple-minded way. Um, I think people of faith need to be involved to say, wait a second, think about this more deeply and think about the the social structure more clearly. I think that the economics of religion has great value for the teaching of economics, especially at religious schools for whom the integration of faith and academic inquiry is so fundamental. At Santa Clara University, which was, as I say, a Jesuit school, we were constantly running around writing and rewriting and rewriting mission statements about this integration, but when it came right down to it, we had relatively little to say. There was kind of like the... Well, you know, being a Christian, I'm kind of worried about, you know, something, some outcome. Uh, and, and then there was chemistry, you know, and, and it was really unclear how you did Christian chemistry, uh, you know, and I'm not sure there's, there's a meaningful Christian chemistry. There's meaningful Christians who are chemists and carry that those commitments into the classroom and into their relationships, Economics is one of the few fields where you can take standard, econo- standard methods of the discipline and use them to illuminate a wide range of religious behaviors. I've just, just mentioned some of that, but you can also turn it around. You can use religion to illustrate standard economic behavior or standard economic insights. Economics has, has grown tremendously in the last 30, 40 years, but the, the typical student still thinks that they're just studying commerce. And, you know, this whole idea of the economics of the family and the economics of marriage and crime and, you know, gambling, and what is it all about? Well, especially at a Christian school, using examples from religion helps to make it sense what it's all about. And and a colleague of mine and Chuck's both, Bob Stonebreaker, has done an especially good job of this. And when he talks about reasoning at the margin, he talks about the decision of whether or not to go to church on any particular day. Uh, When he talks about free riding in the context of standard economics, he talks about the problem confronting a church member Who is trying to decide whether or not to get really involved, knowing that somebody else, if they don't get involved, will take care of things? We all know that no matter how uninvolved we were, and I knew that no matter how rarely I answered my emails, that somehow John Pachata would make it all work out. And uh, and he he worked so hard that he has sort of collapsed and disappeared somewhere. Which is, but but that's what we call free riding, and it happens all over. And. Religion is a good laboratory in which to understand this. Religion is a good laboratory in which to understand non-monetary costs, in which, and especially in which to understand that rational thinking doesn't have to be just tied up with self-interest. I can be very rational about the well-being of other people, people I've never met. My wife is spending is going to spend a month in Uganda, bringing a whole team of people over there to try to teach biblical uh, equality to to uh, you know uh, to. Uh, Ugandan converts to Christianity who come out of a culture where women are sold for cows. Uh, and no matter where you are, you know, on the Republican-Democratic uh, pers- you know, uh, per- continuum in the United States, no matter whether you consider yourself a conservative or, or a liberal, on Feminist issues, you probably don't feel entirely comfortable with the idea of women being sold for cows. And you probably do find it interesting, and I hope, you know, exciting, that there are folks out there who, out of their own interests, uh, in, the, in the broad sense, are putting time and money and energy into trying to teach Ugandans that the Bible has a different way for men and women to interact with each other. Now, you know, uh, if ever there was an example of, of really careful, rational thinking, Applied to something that is not in your own narrow self-interest, it's what missionaries do, and what right, right now my, my wife is doing, uh, and, and a great many other people. Uh, I used to warn. I'm kind of just going through my list here, and I'll finish fairly soon. I used to warn, uh, um, but not that soon. John, Don tells me I have until 1:10, so don't don't get too you know antsy there. All right. Uh, my students always signal, you can do this when it gets to be 105. You start taking your notebook and flapping it down like that, you know, or nowadays it would be the, the, the lid on your computer, um, which is actually a sacrifice because they're playing video games. Uh, but <laughs> for, the, for the sake of the group, they're, they're signaling that it's, that it's, that it's over. Um, I used to warn graduate students uh, at George Mason not to pursue the economics of religion unless they genuinely relish the prospect of unemployment. Uh, (laughs) I would really sort of say to people, look, this is exciting, but unless you're on a mission from God, unless you've had a revelation that you should study this, make it your your sideline or your secondary. I'm actually now getting to the point where I think I can say with a certain degree of honesty, uh, uh, with, with, with real honesty, that Studying the economics of religion can help you get a job and and Chuck and I actually know a few people who've recently gotten PhDs for whom their work on religion was a selling point. Uh, Mike Mikowski, who ended up at Towson University, Wafa Orman, who ended up at Huntsville, uh, uh, and and several others. I think that some expertise on religion, and especially knowing something about religious extremism, can strengthen your job prospects at liberal arts college, especially religiously affiliated colleges, but also others places that, that want to understand this world this, this, that, that, they, that isn't nearly as secular as people thought it would be. Um, I'm increasingly convinced that mainstream economics genuinely needs the economics of religion. And I truly believe it needs the kind of theological and philosophical and Christian uh, contemplation, speculation, consideration that many of you uh, are already very interested in or have contributed to. But that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, Economics probably needs religious economics. The world needs religion. I'm talking about something else. I think that the heartland of economics... uh, can only make progress in in the decades to come if it gets more serious about understanding the role of beliefs and norms and values, self-control, social capital, social networks, uh, in all of the things that we think of as economic. I And I I said this just a couple of weeks ago to a a different group, but it it was just as true then and now. I am seriously considering offering a course called The Economics of Faith-Based Institutions. And given what I do, I expect all the students to enroll planning to, to learn about the economics of religion, and then I'm going to teach a course on banking. Uh, you don't have to have lived through this the last six months, but it helps, to appreciate the extent to which our whole economic system rests on faith. Okay, uh, Faith in other people's ability to follow up on their contracts, faith in what will happen in the future, you know I mean money is all about faith, Milton Friedman, you know who was no you know kind of a religious person made the, you know made this absolutely clear in in some of his work and normally that foundation of faith is sufficiently stable that we can take it as given and sort of forget about it. But in the really important moments, it isn't stable. And especially in developing countries, it's never stable. And what's happened in the field of mainstream economics, especially after the fall of the Soviet Union, especially after decades of work in in development, is that we've begun to learn that more and more, we've been thrown into realizing that culture matters, that institutions matter, that faith matters, that values matter. We don't know quite what to do about it, but we know it matters. It isn't just building giant dams. That was the 1950s approach to development, infrastructure, get Bechtel to solve the problems of Africa. And then it was human capital. T.W. Schultz, Gary Becker, Jacob Mincer, many of the people who I studied under and, and, uh, you know, regard as extraordinary, influential economists, helped us understand education matters. But you know what? It's not enough. You, you, we, and, and, and then we thought with the fall of the Soviet Union, we just needed to get the stock market right. We needed to redistribute the assets, get government. And that isn't enough. And so economists are kind of going around, sometimes sort of blubbering, about, about values and culture. And well, I'm not saying that the economics of religion has it tied up in a neat basket. Or, or, but I'm saying that if you want to understand culture, and you want to understand values, and you want to understand norms, and you want to understand beliefs, for heaven's sakes, start with religion. Even if all you want to do in the long run is understand why you know the Soviet Union or the former Soviet Union uh, is having so much trouble with a banking system or, or retirement, start with the institutions that make faith visible obvious you know and upfront instead of trying to have to study it sort of at the margins. Uh, there are other aspects of everyday economic activity uh, or everyday economic subjects that I think uh, can be greatly illuminated by what I'm calling the economics of religion. One of them is just the range of what should probably be called secular religions. Communism is the, is the prime example of that. Uh, uh, secular liberalism or social liberalism uh, and uh, retains much of this quasi-religious flavor. Uh, Paul Froes, who's in the sociology department here, has a wonderful book called The Plot to Kill God, which talks about how the Soviets worked systematically to create a secular counterpart to Christianity, stealing the very forms, creating their own assemblage of saints and sacred texts and doctrines and so on, and failed miserably because ultimately the supernatural provides things, well... Even if the supernatural doesn't work, you can always blame it. On, you can always say that it's going to work tomorrow uh, or in the next life. But if you're a secular atheist, you can't say that, I know communism isn't working, but in the millennium, you know, uh, I mean, God will solve this problem. Uh, you can't do that, you know, if, you, if you've excluded God. And there are all kinds of insights about what does and doesn't work that we get out of religion that we can apply elsewhere. The environmental movement is, you know, has become about as quasi-religious as anything I've ever seen, uh, and not surprisingly, academia, I'm from George Mason University, and found wanting. And why does this matter? It matters because I'm a part of a social structure, frankly, a kind of an invisible social structure that is more real than my departmental structure. And though you know, and though I've got a dean here, I've got to be careful what I say about structures, ultimately, what my dean, this is not my dean, so I can get it, so uh, you're, you're different, but uh, the dean's... <laughs> The deans I've dealt with, you know, have a, a natural tendency to think that they're the chairman of at least a small version of, of, of General Motors. And it's especially bad when they've been brought in with no background in academia. Uh, and, and, and they discover that, as far as I'm concerned, the only structure that really matters is Gary Becker and, the, you know, and, and, and this other, this invisible... Uh, you know, it sounds sounds religious, like this invisible church, right? It isn't just a coincidence. Education, uh, academia, and religion are very closely allied and have always been. And if you really want to understand academia, I think you probably need to understand religions better. And so I'm giving you this whole long list. I could give you more about religion and politics. But my point is simple enough that the mainstream, the core, the heart of economics needs religion too, uh, in, in this sense, as well probably as as, as God and faith and the Spirit. Um, my last item on my list of reasons why I think this is an important field, I think it provides a foundation, a new foundation for mutual understanding across religious divides, a kind of new ecumenicalism. The old ecumenicalism, the, the ecumenicalism of the National Council of Churches and the World Council of Churches and of many or left-leaning secular types is a lowest common denominator kind of ecumenicalism. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know, you're a pre-millennial dispensationalist and I'm a post-millennial something or other and you believe in the, you know, you believe in the Pope and I kind of believe in the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury and, and uh, you know, I'm a Baptist I believe in myself and the Bible. Uh, and, and, you know, but all of these distinctions, yeah, you know, you're orthodox and, you know, and you are, but they're all basically, you know, it's all basically the same. All, are, all Christians are basically, the same. We're actually all monotheists. Are based Well, you know, actually, you know, the transcendent is basically the same everywhere. I mean, if you really believe this, you don't belong in any of the churches that I know of that make a difference in the world. Now, I'm not saying you're necessarily an evil person if you believe this, but you are frankly naive if you think you're going to sell this to the churches, and they're stupid if they buy it, because the power of religion comes in some sense from the conviction which inherently means a certain kind of exclusivity. I mean, what's more exclusive than saying, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other gods before me? You know, the, the fundamental beliefs of religion are inherently uh, exclusive in that sense, inclusive in the sense that they invite people to join, but you've got to have something to join. The old ecumenicalism says we don't have to join anything because we're all just part of the same sort of soup, you know? And, and for obvious reasons, seriously religious people uh, were, were always antagonistic to and unwilling to, you know, to, to these kind of movements, I think, as well. They should be. Um, I think that the old ecumenicalism fundamentally corrodes religious conviction. But I think this, the alternative that I've not seen discussed nearly enough is an understanding that however different our beliefs might be and however different our conception of, of God and the transcendent might be and however real and important that is, there are other things, because we're human, because we live in society, that bind us together. And, and I had this experience. I'll just give you one example of this and then maybe rattle off a few others. But just, wh- I was meeting with a fellow whose name is Karam Siddiqui. He is a graduate student from the uh, University of Michigan, very bright guy, doing some really interesting work uh, on a virtual census of all the mosques in America and looking at ways in which they're affected by, by competition among each other and their ethnic backgrounds. Just really interesting sort of field work. And... In the process, I discovered that he was second generation, born in the U.S. His parents were immigrants from Pakistan. Uh, He's quite committed. His father came to the U.S. with medical training, but the only place he could be a doctor was in the middle of Iowa. No other, no mosque, you know, within not just miles, but maybe state lines, Uh, and and you know, no community. And so, how did this kid get you know human capital? How did they instill religious capital in their child? Well, they sent him off to summer camps with other Muslims. And he's now married to a woman he originally met at age 14 in a camp in Houston. And she's from, well, they would call it East Pakistan. Now it's called Bangladesh. And they, his family, would call it the, 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 the uh, rebellion or, or the Civil War. They would call it the War of Independence. But what they, the point is, I realized, my gosh, that's my background. I was in this tiny little sect, and you, you, there was no chance you were going to marry one of the you know, five other people who were part of this little group. You had to take your kids, if you were going to keep them in the faith, and make them meet with other people. And so we had camps, and we had conferences. And you know, most denominations do, but, but I can you know, formulate an instant law of religion that says the more thinly spread your religion is, the more important these, interme- these, these uh, recurrent individual kind of Events are camps and conferences and so on. They become really salient for small denominations like the Jehovah's Witnesses. They're just a kind of frosting on the cake if you're a Baptist. But they weren't frosting back when you're a Baptist in in, in the uh, you know in the 1800s in the hinterland. And you know there was a circuit preacher coming by once every you know month or a few months. Then the tent meetings were everything. Well, that's just one little thing. I found myself almost embracing this guy. You know and and not that I have trouble with Muslims in general, but I never felt such connectedness except at that moment I realized then there's a list of a hundred of these that I I can take out of sociology and economics of religion, patterns of conversion, what kind of institutions work and don't work. There's a list of a hundred of these that are truly ecumenical is that they, they cross, as far as I know, all denominational boundaries without minimizing the very real differences. And if I were working, you know, and, and, and I will be working with many more undergraduates at Chapman, some of whom are quite religious, if I were teaching economics to these people and trying to give them an ecumenical view of the world, I wouldn't be telling them that, well, you know, your doctrine uh, doesn't really matter and we're all, you know, it's like Christ of a thousand faces, you know. I'm, no, I would be saying... However much that matters, there are these other things that you have in common, and on the basis of those, you can reach out to other people and understand them better than you would otherwise. Um, Okay, let's wrap this up. Um, My vision for this field that I'm a part of goes well beyond uh, a little niche inside of economics, although it's exciting to know that the economics of religion now has its own AEA code. I think we're Z11, or something like that. Uh, which makes you realize when, how, how long it took them to get around to it. But uh, I see a possibility of a whole kind of academic ecology. At the base of that food chain are, are religiously oriented colleges that are anxious to provide undergraduate training that co- compares favorably to high-quality secular schools, but also integrates religion in meaningful and distinctive ways. Uh, the economics of religion is one of many, but, but one important way in which that can be done. Uh, the ecology also, of course, involves hiring economists and training uh, economists who, uh, to understand more about religion and, and be able to integrate what they know as professional economists with what they know personally and, and through study uh, about religion. Uh, we need researchers and specialists, people doing the kind of work that Chuck is doing and, and many others in this, in this room, uh, and every step, I, I believe, would appeal to the wealthy, well-educated entrepreneurs who want to support education that promotes strong academic training and serious attention to religion, and more often than not, I know I'm talking at Baylor, this is the, this is the not, uh, but more often than not, it's one or the other, you know? You, you support a great university, or you support a religious university, but there are very few that are both. Uh, uh economics of religion is one way to, to begin to bring the pieces together, uh, if you think my grand vision is a little too grand, I'll simply point this out in my remaining 30 seconds or so. Um, the first publication in the economics of religion was in 1776, Adam Smith, chapter in the Wealth of Nations. Near as I can tell, the second was in 1976, or five, by Ozzie and Ehrenberg in the Journal of Political Economy. 200 years before your first and second publication is a very very slow start for any field. <laughs> Since that time though in the 80s we've seen you know a dozen or more good articles in the 90s many dozens now an association, the Association for the Study of Religion, Economics, and Culture, that has grown, as Chuck said, from 25 or so in 2002 to, 50 to 30 the next year, and 55 the year after that. And we had our last meeting two weeks ago, about 130 presenters, about 180 people present. Uh, you, you fit a regression to this. Uh, and, and, and linear regression doesn't fit at all. Uh, uh, you and, and the, you, you look to the great admonition of, of God, the first I think great admonition in, in Genesis uh, for one twenty-two. It says, "Go forth and multiply." So clearly, this is a divine mandate for exponential growth. You fit an exponential to this, and uh, yes, I'm joking. But uh, you know, in another twelve, in another five years, we overtake uh, ASREC, That is the American Economic Association, and shortly thereafter, the Mormons and then the Catholic Church. Now. <laughs> I don't really mean that, folks, but what I mean is this. I think there's a tremendous opportunity. This is my, every good sermon ends with an altar call, so here's my uh, altar call. I think there's this tremendous opportunity, particularly among people of faith, to contribute to the integration of academic and spiritual life in a new way, in a new subfield, a subfield that has already attained a good deal of respect and legitimacy in the eyes of non-religious people. And that gives it strength that a purely religious enterprise never is going to have. Uh, And I think that uh, people of faith and institutions of faith can promote this in a way that advances their own interests and advances interests much more broadly of people of faith of all traditions, and indeed helps to just reintegrate our society, which has separated The life of faith, from the life of the mind, so thoroughly over the last few generations that we're all paying a huge penalty. That's my optimistic hope for the future. That's my altar call. (laughs) Thank you very much. One, two. We have time for a few good short questions.
2: Hello. Um, John Mueller from the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Mm-hmm. This is our first interaction. I know your wife. Uh, I've met with her a couple of times. Oh, yes, And I'm a yes. great, great admirer of her, of her work, so oh. uh, I'm finally glad to meet you in person. Uh, yeah. The Mike, Redemption of Love, Carrie
1: Miles, Amazon.com, 15 bucks, great Christmas
2: present. <laughs> She's doing great work. Uh, my question, uh, I thought you did, by the way, an excellent, um, concise uh, description of what uh, the – economic approach to human behavior is and how um, the economic approach to religion is an application that it has three premises as you said maximizing behavior stable preferences and uh, market equilibrium uh, pressed as you said re- relentlessly and unflinchingly now the question I didn't realize anyone was listening this closely <laughs> I mean, no 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 I have my own paper uh, this afternoon is on a similar subject but the question I wanted to ask is doesn't the economic approach, and by extension, the religious, um, uh, its application to the economics of religion, contain a large gap and potential vulnerability on the question of what are preferences? For example, what's, um, and I'm thinking here of St. Augustine, who was the first actually to describe what utility is, that it's a scale of preferences that, as I I prefer vanilla to strawberry ice cream, and so I'm willing to pay a little bit more for, for vanilla. That's the scale of the utility which he described in uh, City of God. But in Augustine's theory, we actually operate on the basis of two kinds of preferences. And our preference for scarce means are really secondary and derivative. Our most fundamental preference, he argued, is for persons. Let's, um, let's take the example that you raised why don't we get out of bed to go to uh, church for one hour a week on Sunday? Well, as I understand, in the economic pr- approach, it's because the utility of lying in bed mm-hmm. exceeds at the moment the utility of going, uh, going to church, or the utility of going to church next week, um, uh, today, uh, exceeds going next week. Um, in Augustinian terms, it's really a comparison of, of persons, that is, our two kinds of preferences mean that we express our economic behavior in two kinds of ways. Uh, sale or gift, as he put it, or exchange and gift. By our distributing our resources between ourselves and others, we express not only our, our preferences for the goods, but also the relative preference for the persons. That is, if there is a personal relationship with God, then it means I have to expend an hour's worth of time a week uh, to him that I could otherwise be using using for my own uh, interest. So my my question really is, isn't there a a potential gap in the economic approach and the religious approach uh, which requires filling with this extra, more fundamental scale of preferences?
1: Okay, let me try to uh, answer briefly in in a a list-like fashion. Number one... I never have claimed, nor do I believe, that the economic approach to pretty much anything, including buying apples, let alone choosing to worship God, is all there is to to the process of decision-making or being human. And I fully recognize that a lot of very good contemporary economics of the last 20 years uh, and good psychology and neurobiology has helped us, you know, is beginning to flesh in ju- just how great the gap is between what we do- actually do and-, and what our models, our simple models suggest is going on. I nevertheless think that the, the models provide uh, a lot of useful starting points, particularly compared to the assumptions that have driven the study of religion in the social sciences over the last 150 years. Because what we've traditionally done is looked at religion as a act of irrationality, uh, and in many ways, economics is a terribly useful corrective to approaches that have emphasized, you know, Freudian obsessions and indoctrination and you know, blind socialization and bigotry and just plain cognitive errors all over. So I think that. At the margin, so to speak, economics has a lot to contribute, but it, but there's no reason that that margin is ever going to get you to the whole. And I welcome all of this other work that you mention. The problem with it is that uh, I see myself, uh, you know, as a scholar, as a kind of intellectual bricklayer. And and I, you know, I can read works that I find much more expansive than standard economics, and in their own way, terrifically insightful. But I often don't know how to build on them, and, and so. My simple problem is is that I'm a a bear of little brain, as as Winnie the Pooh would say, and uh, I think that the economic approach uh, is is well designed for for getting the enterprise started. I don't think it's going to finish it off by a long means, by a long shot. And and, uh,
2: that's that's really all I. That's helpful in terms of bricks. Though the stone that the builders rejected has become the (laughs) cornerstone. The
1: foundation, you know, that you're that. Of, of faith is is critical I've studied you know preference formation in my own work but I'm never going to tell you that the reason I'm a Christian or let alone the reason you are is simply a matter of, of doing the, the calculations I, I want to mention that the bookstore is going to be open till 8:30 this evening. So if you I know our, we've been cutting into our time, and I think a lot of you want to look at the, the, at the book, so it will be open this evening. Uh, let's give a nice uh, round of applause to Larry.
0: Okay, On to the next concurrent session.